Thanks for joining us for today's message. We encourage you to email us and let us know what God is currently doing in your life. Or if you'd like to support the ministry financially, you can do so here on our website. But for now, we hope you enjoy this message from our guest minister. Thanks for tuning in today. Good evening. Well, before you're seated, tell your neighbor, tonight we're going to get something brand new from the Word of God. Going to get something brand new from the Word of God. Tell somebody else. Going to get something brand new from the Word of God. And then you may be seated. Well, it's really been a pleasure to be here with you for these three services. And I'm pretty impressed. I mean, you guys are really tough. This is the third time you've turned out. And I want to say thank you so much for being here. It's been such a pleasure to be in Sioux Falls and to have the time with you and to have this time with your pastors. Wow, what a privilege. And thank you today for praying for my mother. I appreciated that this morning. I really did. But I want to lead us in prayer, and then we're going to jump right into the Word. Father, we thank you for tonight. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be in three services in this church. And Holy Spirit, tonight as we come to the conclusion of this time, we ask you to give us the final word that we need. We thank you for the power of the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the power of the blood of Jesus. We thank you for the victory that we have been given in Jesus Christ. And Holy Spirit, tonight we ask you to speak to us about how to deal with surprise attacks. And we thank you for this in the wonderful name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Go ahead and open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 6. Tonight we're going to begin in verse 12. In our first service, we saw that the Scripture commands us in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 that we are to be vigilant against the works of the enemy. In the second service, we saw seven concrete ways how to fortify ourselves or reinforce ourselves so the devil can never find access to us. But even if we do everything we're supposed to do to block his attack, sometimes there are surprise attacks. And tonight, that's what I want to deal with. And we're going to concretely see a surprise attack which came against the ministry of Jesus and how Jesus repelled that attack. But I want us to begin in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, where the Apostle Paul begins a discourse on spiritual warfare. And if you don't have my book called Dress to Kill... I would encourage you to get that book because I deal extensively with these verses. But in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, the Apostle Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. And when we come to Ephesians 6 and verse 12, it is almost as though Paul sees into the realm of the Spirit. The word revelation, by the way, is the Greek word apokalupsis. The word apo means a way. The word kalupsis is the word for a veil. When you compound the two words together, the word apokalupsis translated revelation. It means to part the veil or to pull the curtains apart so you can see what is there. And what you see has always been there, but you've never been able to see it because it was veiled. But when a revelation occurs, suddenly the Spirit parts the veil and you're able to see what your eyes have never been able to see. 
Very interesting example of this is Revelation chapter 1, where the Apostle John has received the book of Revelation. And what is the book of Revelation really called? It's not called the book of Revelation, but the full name is the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, when you come to Revelation chapter 1, we see a Jesus that is very different from the Jesus that we see in the Gospels. For example, when you come to Revelation chapter 1, we see Jesus with eyes that are like a flame of fire. His feet are burning like brass in a furnace. His voice is like the sound of many waters. His face shines like the sun in all of its brilliance. This was a Jesus that we never saw in the four Gospels. But it's not a new Jesus because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But that particular aspect of Jesus was veiled when Jesus was on the earth. But in Revelation chapter 1, the veil is pulled apart. And interesting that in Revelation chapter 1, verse 13, John says, I saw one like unto the Son of Man. He knew that he had the form of the Son of Man, but now he was seeing something so different from what he carried in his memories about Jesus. And that's because the Holy Spirit pulled the veil apart. And he didn't see something new. This has always been true of Jesus, but he had never seen it until the Spirit pulled the veil apart and he had a revelation. Well, now when you come to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, Paul has a revelation. The curtain is pulled apart. Paul sees into the realm of the Spirit. And he can supernaturally see how Satan's kingdom is aligned militarily. And when we come to verse 12, he begins to describe what he has seen in the realm of the Spirit. And it begins in verse 12 by saying, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Interesting that when you read this in the Greek text, the sentence structure is different. It says, for the wrestle is to us. And that's very important. Because it means at some point, all of us are going to be pulled into a conflict with unseen spirits that have been marshaled against us. The Greek literally says, the wrestle is to us. And in fact, the word wrestle is the Greek word pale. The word pale is a word that would have been known by every Greek who read this. It is an athletic term. Now, if I say the word football, I don't need to stop and explain what is football to an American. Americans all know what is football. We all grow up with football. If I say the word football, I don't need to give you a whole discourse on what is football. You would know what I'm talking about. Well, when they saw this word wrestle, the Greek word pale, it was like the word football to them. They immediately saw what Paul was talking about. And this word pale really should not be translated wrestle. The word pale was borrowed from the palestra. The palestra was a house of combat sports. A house of combat sports. And every major Greek city had a palestra, and that's where we get this word poly, which here is translated as the word wrestle. In the house of combat sports, in the palestra, there were three primary types of athletes. There were boxers, there were wrestlers, and there was a sport called pancration. Boxers were not like our boxers. First of all, three sports were fought completely naked. No one wore any clothes when they fought. They didn't want anything to hinder their movements, so they stripped of everything in order to fight. And if you're fighting, that makes the fight very dangerous. <laughs> but when the boxers boxed, they wore straps of leather 
that were wrapped from their elbows all the way down their arms, 16 feet of leather, then wrapped around their hands, wrapped around their knuckles, and for every knuckle there was affixed a nail that was serrated like the blade of a hunting knife. These were not regular boxers. These were the boxers in the palestra. And that's why when you see the ancient artwork of the Greeks, especially on their vases, and it depicts athletics, you'll see pictures of boxers with blood pouring from their face, with their noses missing, their eyes, their ears missing, because they were fighting men that literally had knives on the ends of each of their knuckles. And they were so committed to win. They were so committed to bring down their opponent that we actually have the example of one boxer who was sucked so hard in his mouth, it knocked out all of his front teeth. Rather than spit his teeth out and alert his enemy that he had been wounded, he chose to swallow his teeth and just keep fighting. That was the attitude of boxers. And usually someone died during a boxing match. Then there were wrestlers. Wrestling was also fought in the nude. And when the wrestlers came to fight, there were very few rules to the game. There were a few, but not many. And in wrestling, you could nearly do anything to your opponent, including using your thumb to gouge out their eyes. You could break their spine, break their back, break their legs, break anything. It didn't really matter. Your job was to pin them to the floor and to kill them if possible. That's the way the wrestlers competed. Then there was the third sport, which is called pankration. It's a compound of two Greek words. The word pan means all. The word kratos means power. Compound the two words together. These were the men who had mastered every sport, pankration. They had more power than anyone else. And these were the men who survived the previous boxing match and wrestling match, and now they were in the ring to face the other survivors. And they fought with clubs that were spiked with nails, satchels of rocks. It was a grueling, horrific sport. All of that is in this word, which is here translated wrestle. That's the word. The word pale from the palestra. And when every Greek read this, they understood that Paul was saying, when you enter into combat with spiritual forces, it can potentially be a back-snapping, eye-gouging, blood-spilling event. This was a very serious word, and when the readers saw this, they would have all sat straight up in their chairs. Immediately he got their attention. He says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities and what? Powers and? Rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in high places. And notice one word in this verse is repeated over and over and over. What word? Against. Well, usually in Greek, the word against would be the word anti, like antichrist. You've all heard the word antichrist. That means to be against. But in this case, all five times the word against is used. It's not the word anti. It's the Greek word pros. And the word pros describes very intimate contact. For example, it's the very word that is used in John chapter 1 and verse 1 when the Bible says, In the beginning was with the word, and the word was what? 
with God. That word with is the same word, the word pros. And there in John 1.1, it's used to describe the intimate relationship between the members of the Godhead. It literally is the picture of God the Father and Jesus so close to each other, they can nearly feel each other's breath breathing upon each other's face. Pros. And now Paul uses that very word to describe what kind of contact we may potentially have with these spirits that are marshaled against us. This is not something that's going to happen on the other side of town or in another country where missionaries work, but Paul says this is something that may try to invade your very own territory. Pros, you may experience very intimate contact with these powers. And then he describes the powers, and he begins by saying principalities, the Greek word archas, it describes high-ranking demon spirits that have held their seats of power from ancient times, and it was a military term used to describe the generals of an army. Secondly, he says, against powers, the Greek word exousias, the word exousias means delegated power or licensed power. This is high-ranking demon spirits that have received license from the principalities, and having received license and authority, they are roaming spirits that have received license to do whatever they want to do, wherever they desire to do it. And then he describes a third category, rulers of the darkness of this world. The Greek word kosmokrateros, and this is a very, very strange word. I first studied this word when I was studying classical Greek in the university, and it completely perplexed me because it's a Greek word kosmos, Compatent with the word kratos. The word cosmos, in this case, describes something that is ordered or something that is disciplined, something that is arranged. The word kratos is the word power. You compound the two words together. It's power that has been harnessed. It's power that has been ordered, power that's been arranged, power that has been disciplined. And it was a military term used to describe a boot camp or a military training center where young men were turned into soldiers. Well, what is a boot camp? What is a military training center? It's where you take all those young men, raw power, and what do you do with them? You harness them. You train them. You organize them. You discipline them, and then you send them out. Well, when I saw this, the Greek Cosmocrateros a military boot camp where soldiers are trained to do what they do. I understood that if we're going to take this just from a linguistic point of view, forget theology, just from a point of language, this word can only mean that the devil is so serious about his victimization of human beings that he actually trains demon spirits to do what they do. Hmm. There are some demon spirits that just do perversion. That's all they do. And when they're finished with one, they move on to the next. There are some demon spirits that do nothing but cancer. They're spirits of cancer. How many of you know there are spirits of cancer? That's all they do. That's the weapon they were trained to use. There are spirits of addiction. That's all they do. There are spirits of divorce. And when they're finished with one home, they dislodge from that home. They move to another home to do it to another home because that's the weapon they were given in their training. And the first time I really understood this, I had studied this word, but had never heard anyone else teach on this word, cosmocrateros, so 
I knew what it meant, but I didn't know how to make it work. And Denise and I were doing a meeting in western Oklahoma in the early years. And we had a prayer line for the sick. And people came to the front, and a man and woman came to the front of the church. He had his hands behind his back, and his wife had her hands in her pockets. And I began to ask them why they had come to the front and found out they were unbelievers. They didn't even believe in healing. But someone had brought them to the service, and when we had a prayer line, that person urged them to come to the front. So now they're standing at the front. They don't even believe in healing, but they need healing. And I said to the man, how can I pray for you? And he pulled his hands out from behind his back. His hands were so twisted. They were so ruined that it was hard to believe they were hands. His fingers had grown into the palm of his hand and his thumb was coming out the other side of his hand and both hands looked identical one to the other. And I said to him, what happened to you? He said, well, he said, you know, I don't know about all this Christian terminology you use around here, so I'm just going to tell you how it happened. I said, that's what I want to know. He said, one day I felt something come on my hands. And he said, I began to develop pain. And over a number of years, my hands began to hurt and my fingers began to bend. And he said, after a number of years, it did this to me. And he said, you know, the amazing thing is, when my hands were totally ruined, I felt that thing lift off of me and leave me. Well, standing next to him was his wife who had her hands in her pockets. I said, and how can I pray for you? She said, well, there's part of the story he didn't tell you. When that thing lifted off of him, it came on me. And she pulled her hands out of her pockets, and they were identical to her husband's hands. And when I saw this, immediately, the Holy Spirit reached into my brain and quickened that word cosmocrateros, a military boot camp where soldiers are trained to use their weapons. And I could see here was a spirit of affliction that had been trained to do this horrible, horrible thing. And when it was finished with one, it dislodged and immediately moved to the next member of the family to do it again. This is why some sicknesses run in families. They are spirits of affliction that have tried to attach themselves to a family, and until somebody stops it with the blood of Jesus, it will continue to be passed from generation to generation. But we can stop it with the blood of Jesus. We can stop that. But so when Paul talks about spiritual wickedness or world powers, as one translation says, the Greek word cosmokrateros, he's really describing Satan's victimization is so serious that he has trained spirits to do what they do. And then finally, he says, spiritual wickedness in high places. Wickedness being the Greek word poneros, the word poneros describes something that is utterly malevolent or insidious. This is horrible. This is evil that has been let loose. And he says in high places... But in Greek, there's two words for high places. One describes the air above the mountaintops, and the other describes the air below the mountaintops. This word describes the air below the mountaintops. 
These demon spirits that have been trained and dispatched have not been sent out into the universe. There's no one out there for them to afflict. But they've come right down into our atmosphere. And really, this word high places could be translated the lower, denser regions of the air. They have come down low where they can use their weapons of destruction to afflict and to maim human beings. All of that is in this text. Quite a revelation, wouldn't you say? But Paul begins by saying, for we wrestle not against what? Flesh and blood. Often when demon spirits attack, it appears that it's a flesh and blood problem. You may think it's a problem with your spouse. And so rather than deal with the unseen forces, you wrangle with your spouse. And you can't defeat it because it's not a spouse problem. It's something working behind the scenes. It may be manifesting in the flesh, but the real problem is not in the flesh. It's working behind the scenes. That could be a sickness problem. And by the way, many regional conflicts in the world that we think we can solve cannot be solved with bullets. There are regions of the world, especially in the Middle East, where there have been high-ranking demon spirits working all the way since the book of Daniel, where they are identified. And those same demon spirits are working in those regions today, and they cannot be taken down with armor and bullets. They have to be taken down in the spirit because it is a spiritual problem. Now I'm going to give you a story. Many years ago, when Denise and I were younger in the ministry, we were getting ready to publish a new book, a book called Life in the combat zones. Back on the table, it's a marvelous book. And I knew that God was really going to use that book. And at that time, our ministry was exploding. We were preaching about 450 times a year. People were buying my books quicker than I could print them. It was just a wonderful, explosive, fun time in the ministry. And just as we were getting ready to publish that book, and I needed a lot of money to do it, it seemed like all of a sudden, our money dried up, just dried up. Our partners, whom we depend upon, it seemed like they all had a secret convocation somewhere and they all decided they would stop supporting us the same month. I mean, the money just stopped. Meetings were canceled, so we didn't have any income from the meetings. Our money just dried up. And at first, I thought, well, we can handle this. It's going to be okay. And then a few weeks went by, and we were not handling it very well. And then I couldn't pay our bills. And then it got serious. And when it gets serious is usually when you really begin to pray. (laughs) But before I prayed, I pulled out the calculator. And I began punching in those numbers. And I thought I was smart enough to figure this out, that I would work this out. Somehow we'll be okay. It's just a matter of time. We'll be okay. We'll survive. Punch, 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 punch. That tape coming out of that calculator. But it didn't matter how I punched in the numbers. Everything that came out was red. There was a deficit. And I found myself worried about finances, struggling with money. Money, money. Every time I prayed, I was praying about money. Have, ever, have any of you ever been in that position before? You know, some people say, oh, they're rich. They have it so bad. Hey, I'd choose being rich over poor any day of the week. The rich wonder where to invest it. Their greater bondage is the poor. They live to find more money. They don't have enough that's always on their mind. 
And I found that every time I prayed, every time I lifted my hands, I said one thing to God. Money. In fact, you would have thought that was God's name. Money. Money. And one day the Holy Spirit spoke to me and he said, you do not have a money problem. I said, then what kind of problem do I have? He said, you do not have a money problem. I said, then Lord, tell me what kind of problem do I have? He said, this is a spiritual problem. And he directed me to go to Mark chapter 4, and I want you to turn there right now. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. And when I came to Mark 4, verse 35, the Holy Spirit began to open these verses to me, and I saw my problem. And in Mark chapter 4, verse 35, the Bible is describing Jesus, and it says, The same day, verse 35, when the evening was come, he said unto his disciples, Let's pass over unto the what? Other side. You need to know that anytime you're getting ready to go over to the other side, the devil does not want you to get there. Does anybody remember what was going to happen on the other side? The other side was the country of the Gadarenes. And who lived in the country of the Gadarenes? Two demon-possessed men. One that was extremely demon-possessed. In fact, he had so many demons, he said he had a legion of demons. A legion is a Roman term describing 6,826 demons. When that one demon spoke out of that man in Mark chapter 5 and said, My name is Legion, for we are many, a paraphrase would be, What do you mean, what is my name? Don't you know who you're talking to? I'm just the spokesman. There are 5,006, there are 6,000 or almost 7,000 of us inside this man. Wow, this man was packed with demon spirits. But Jesus delivered him. And the devil knew that if Jesus reached the other side, there was going to be a great demonstration of power and a man was going to be set free. And when that man would be set free, that entire territory, all the people who lived there would no longer be terrorized by that man. So Jesus is in the boat headed to the other side where his power and his glory is going to be revealed and people on a large scale are going to be set free. And notice what happens while they're en route to the other side. Verse 36. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship and there were with him other little ships. Verse 37. And there arose... A great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. Well, in verse 37, in Greek, there are several very important words. First of all, it says there arose. In Greek, this is the word genomai. The word genomai describes something that takes you off guard or by surprise. It takes you off guard or by surprise. So this storm was a surprise. Well, you have to recall that the majority of Jesus' disciples were what professionally before they became disciples? They were fishermen. They knew the weather of the sea. They knew the weather of the lake. They knew all about the water. They knew everything. And if a natural storm had been brewing that night, it is unlikely they would have started their trip across the sea. 
And now the Holy Spirit injects into this text the word ginomai to tell us there is an element of surprise. This took them off guard completely by surprise. When they started sailing that night, it was a great night for sailing. There were no clouds. There was no bad weather. It was the perfect night for sailing when ginomai suddenly. The Greek could actually be translated out of the clear blue. We don't know where it came from. It was the last thing we would have expected that night, suddenly, out of nowhere, taking us off guard and completely by surprise. There arose a great storm of wind. Hmm. Well, naturally, this storm might have been explained. Notice it says there arose. Do you see that? There arose... A great storm of wind. North of the Sea of Galilee is Mount Hermon. And real strong winds build on the top of Mount Hermon. And if the atmospheric conditions are right, they come rushing down off the top of the mountain and they hit the sea. And when they hit the sea, there is a ricochet effect and they come up. And that's why when you read one of the Gospels, it says the wind came down. Another Gospel says the wind came up. Both Gospels are correct. And another Gospel says that the sea began to violently shake like the earth in an earthquake. Naturally, that's the way you would have described what they were experiencing that night, if you were going to naturally describe it. But notice what else this verse says. And there arose, Genomai, out of nowhere, the last thing we would have expected, a great storm of what? Wind. This word wind is the Greek word leleps. It does not describe rain. It's not a downpour. It's not a thunder shower. It's a great storm of wind, which is the Greek word for turbulence. It was turbulence. You can't see it, but you can feel the effects of it. So now they are in the middle of the lake, in the middle of the night, and suddenly out of nowhere, taking them completely off guard, completely by surprise, they are assailed by something they can feel but they cannot see. They feel the effects of it, but they can't point at it. They can't touch it. They can't identify it. There is turbulence in the atmosphere. And then to let us know this was not a natural storm, the verse goes on to say, so that it beat into the ship, beat into the Greek word epibalo. There's no doubt about the meaning of this word. The word epi means over. The word balo means to throw. You put the two words together. It means to pick something up like a ball or a rock and throw it over. This never is a word used to describe the act of nature. It always describes the activity of a person or an entity. And by using this word, the Holy Spirit tells us when they were in the middle of the sea, in the middle of the night, headed to the other side, Genomai, out of nowhere, taking them off guard by surprise, completely off guard, there arose turbulence. An enemy they could not see, they felt the effects of it. An unseen entity was picking up the waves of the sea and was hurling them over against the ship. 
And when the Bible says waves in Greek, it's important that this is plural. It was one after another, after another, after another, that unseen force picking up the waves, slamming them into the ship, trying to sink Jesus' ship in the middle of the sea, in the middle of the night, so he would never reach the other side. All of that's in this verse. What do you suppose the disciples were doing? They were fighting waves and bailing water. What would you be doing? Monster waves. They had never seen waves like this. These were professional fishermen. They didn't anticipate this, and suddenly monster waves are being hurled against the ship from every direction. These disciples are fighting. They're struggling. They're binding waves and bailing water. They're fighting those waves. And where is Jesus? Look at verse 38. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. Jesus wasn't worried that they weren't going to make it to the other side. And what was stealing the peace of the apostles, the moving of the boat, was nice. It lulled Jesus to sleep. The peace of God that passes all understanding. Here they are fighting waves, binding waves, bailing waters. And Jesus is thinking, just keep moving the boat a little bit more like that. And Jesus is asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and said unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And when the Bible says they awake him, that word awake is the same Greek word for resurrection, which means they were in such desperate trouble. They did not all come back to the hinder part of the ship and form a little circle around Jesus and say, who's going to wake him up? <laughs> Peter, do you want to wake him up? Let's just kind of nudge him and see if we can wake him up. No, the Greek word means they resurrected him. And they awake him. Isn't that nice how the King James Version says it? The Greek says, and they jerked him up out of his sleep. And said unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And the Greek literally says, is there no care in you toward us? It's such a pitiful, pitiful phrase. Is there no pity in you? Is there no care in you toward us? And in this verse, it says they called him Master. But there are three Gospels which tell this story. They're called the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in all three Gospels, if you put them together, each Gospel writer tells a little bit different part of the story. One Gospel writer says, They said, Lord, carest thou not that we perish? The next Gospel writer says that they said, Teacher, Carest thou not that we perish? And finally you come to this gospel where they don't say Lord, they don't say teacher, they say master. What an interesting progression. Oh, it's very important. The word Lord usually describes the first phase we go through when we come under attack. The word Lord is the word kurias, which means O sovereign one that is in control. When we come under attack, how often do we say, it's going to be all right. Jesus is Lord. 
Everything's going to be fine. This is going to pass. Everything's going to be fine. Jesus is Lord. Oh, Lord, we know that you're in control. And then when the attack continues and continues and continues and continues and you're getting no relief, that's when often we move into the second phase. When we call him teacher. And we say, somehow, in some strange and mysterious way, God has allowed this event in our life that he might teach us something. Have you ever been through that phase? And finally, when you've had all the teaching you want, you can't pay your bills, you're tired of being sick, you're tired of the strife, you've had all the teaching you can handle, you finally come to the end of yourself where you call him master, which is the Greek word epistata, which means get on the spot and get here right now. Boss on the spot. And they had been through all three of these phases that night. Jesus is in control. Everything's going to be fine. Well, it's not okay. We're having a rough time. Maybe God's trying to teach us something in the middle of this surprise attack, in the middle of this storm. Finally, you know what? We're sinking. I don't care what he's trying to teach us. I want him to get out here and save us right now. And usually when you come to that moment is when God's power begins to operate. And let me tell you something. God wants to explain everything to you. But get delivered and then ask your questions. Save your questions for the right moment. When you're sinking, it's not the time to ask the questions. Get delivered and then let the Lord answer your questions. But they said, Master, Epistata, get on the spot right now. They resurrected him out of his sleep. And the Bible says, and he arose. And what did he do? What does the verse say? He rebuked the what? The wind. Well, what do you suppose the disciples thought? Here Jesus stands up, straightening his clothes. The disciples have been doing what? Binding waves and bailing water, fighting monster waves, 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 waves. And Jesus stands, lifts his head into the sky, and begins to speak to the atmosphere. He begins to rebuke the wind. I can just imagine Peter saying, what is wrong with him? These waves are killing us, and he's talking to the sky. But Jesus had the discernment to realize they did not have a wave problem. The problem was the wind, something invisible. And the verse says Jesus rebuked the wind. The word rebuke, the Greek word epitomao. Now, most of us think the word rebuke is a really special, almost magical word. Devil, I rebuke you. But Jesus never used the word rebuke. The word rebuke, the Greek word epitomeo, describes an action. It describes a series of words. The word timeo is the word for honor. But when you attach the word epi in front of it, it means to dishonor, to chide, to disrespect, to derail, to make fun of, to scorn. It is a terrible word. 
Remember that Satan was a creature who fell because of pride. Every time Jesus rebuked the devil, here Jesus rebuking an unseen force, Jesus is literally humiliating. He is assaulting the pride of that entity. You foul thing. If you notice when Jesus rebuked spirits, he normally called them names. You foul, unclean thing. Jesus assaulting, speaking against, humiliating, deriding, denouncing, assaulting the pride of that spiritual force. Jesus rebuked the wind. And when he was finished with the wind, the verse says, then he turned to the sea. And he said unto the waves, peace, be still. The Greek word here is almost impossible to translate. It means to be muzzled. If you're going to try to translate it, it literally means Jesus turned to the sea and said, Shh. And what happened? And there was a great calm. Previously, there had been a great storm. Now Jesus matches it with a great calm, which tells me anything the devil does, Jesus at least will match. The disciples have been struggling with flesh and blood. They've been dealing with the waves, wrangling with the waves. Well, the devil knows if he can get you to fight the waves, he'll take you down. Because even if you can defeat one wave, he'll send another wave. And if you can defeat that, he'll send another wave, and another wave, and another wave, and another wave. He'll get you so involved in fighting waves that he'll exhaust you and take you down. The same with problems in life. If you defeat one, another one will come, and another one will come, and another one will come. And if you're just involved in dealing with the problem... He has more problems to send your way than you know how to deal with. But Jesus understood. So he lifted his head. He spoke into the atmosphere. He began to rebuke the unseen source that was throwing these waves against the ship. And then just turned to the water. He knew the water really was not a problem. The problem was the wind. And once he dealt with the source... Then Jesus turned to the symptoms and he said, shh. And everything immediately calmed down. Verse 40. And he said unto them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? One man has said it really means, why didn't you do this? You have the same faith that I have. Why did you not speak to the wind and then to the waves? You could have done precisely what I did. Why did you wake me up? You all had the ability to do this. Where is your faith? Verse 41, and they feared exceedingly and said one to another, what manner of man is this? 
that even the wind and the sea obey him. The word obey, the Greek word hupotasso, is a military term which means to fall in line. They heard the voice of a commander and they obeyed. Well, I had said to the Lord, if I don't have a money problem, what kind of problem do I have? And when I saw this text, I understood. I didn't have a money problem. My problem wasn't money. What was my problem? Wind. It was a spiritual force which had come against us because we as a ministry were headed to the other side. And the trouble was trying to abort it before we got there. And when I saw this, I put the calculator away. Now, nothing wrong with a calculator if you've got a natural problem. But if you're being assaulted by a spiritual force, you can't solve it by natural means. You have to lift your eyes to the invisible realm. And I took a clue from Jesus and began to epitamao. I began to assault the spiritual realm. I began to assault the pride of that creature. I began to rebuke it, a chain of demeaning words against prideful creatures, prideful entities, taking authority over them. And then I looked at my stack of bills. And I said, literally, And almost immediately, within days, partners began supporting our ministry. Money began to flow back into the ministry. It was like somebody had turned the valve back on and things began to flow. And I clearly saw it had never been a partner problem. It had never been a money problem. It had never been a management problem. It had been a spiritual entity. Because we were headed to a victory in our lives. Now, I want to tell you this about the devil. I've been talking about the devil. This is our third service to talk about the devil. And to be honest, I don't even like to talk about the devil because he is a defeated foe. But the Bible says that where ignorance abounds, people are destroyed. And the devil preys on ignorance. And you have to understand, he tries to find access into your life. That's why we're told to be Vigilant. Everybody say vigilance. We're told in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9, that we are to resist him steadfast in the faith. The word steadfast, the Greek word stereos, reinforcing ourselves. We need to do everything we can to make sure we're strong and constructing ourselves in such a way that he cannot penetrate us. But if we come under attack, we need to do every natural thing we can do. Don't get me wrong. You need to use your calculator. You need to use your brains. You need to use budgets. You need to put away the credit cards. You need to take care of your body. You need to read books, study, learn. You need to do everything. But if that's all you're doing when you're under attack, then you probably need to take it to the next level. Now, I'm going to be honest. 
I'm a real logical kind of guy. And I don't like a lot of spooky Christian behavior. I just don't like it. Turns me off. So I'm not one that runs around talking about the devil and talking to the devil and rebuking the devil. I just don't do that very often. But if I understand that I'm under spiritual assault, I've learned it doesn't do any good just to deal with the problem. I've got to take it to another level. And I've got to deal with the invisible realm. Because if I don't, all I'm doing is fighting waves and bailing water. So if you come under assault, do the natural part, but also do the spiritual part. Also do the spiritual part. I'll end just with this little story about me and Denise. In the early years when we first started our ministry, we were traveling across America in a car to churches. And every once in a while we'd get in strife. Well, it was hard not to get into strife, actually. We were in an Isuzu iMark. Do you remember how tiny were those little cars? They were so little, our thighs nearly touched each other as we're driving. And we're driving thousands and thousands of miles. She's carrying Philip, our baby, on her lap. Back in those days, it wasn't against the law. Paul's in the back seat, won't stay in his car chair. So every few miles, I'm pulling him over to put him back in his car chair. I mean, ugh, talk about a situation that tries your nerves. Did you ever have a child that wouldn't stay in their car chair? You want to hear a story? One time, we could not keep Paul in the car chair. I was so tired of stopping every few miles to put him back in the car chair. I would discipline, spank him, threaten him, put him in the car chair, get back in my seat, and he would already be out of the car chair. So one night we were traveling, and we pulled up to a fast, to a fast, uh, what do you call those? A convenience store. A convenience store. And when I pulled up, I pulled up because Paul was out of the car chair. And I looked over to my side, and there was a policeman in his car. So I got out, and I walked over to him, and I said, sir, would you please help me? He said, what do you need? I said, I want you to come tell my little boy you're going to arrest him. <laughs> the policeman said, this is going to be fun. <laughs> he walked over to the car, opened the back door, put his leg up on the rim of the car, pulled out his revolver and began tapping it on his legs and said, son, do you know what happens to little boys that won't stay in their car chair? But anyway, we're living in very close quarters. And so Denise and I, occasionally we get into strife. Well, we're not strifeful people. But suddenly we would find ourselves in strife with each other. Horrible. 
And I would think, where in the world did this come from? Have you ever been in strife with your spouse? And wondered, how did this begin? We were having a normal conversation. Suddenly we are so deep in this conversation, and you don't even know how to get out of it. I mean, you're so deep, you don't know how to end it. And every time we got into strife, one of our kids would get sick. Every single time. And we begin to see that there was a pattern. We'd get into strife, and the result is a child would become sick. And one day, Denise and I finally got it. Wow. This is not us. This is a spiritual force. This is a spirit of strife. So we covenanted together. And we formed in our family a no-strife policy. And we have lived with a no-strife policy these three decades, more than three decades. We just don't allow it. We do not open the door to a spirit of strife because it is a spirit. And if you'll open the door, it will come. And when it comes, it brings division, it brings sickness, it brings chaos, it brings everything. It is a spirit. You have to resist it to keep it out. Just like I said earlier, you've got to be vigilant. But because it had already found access, I said to Denise, and she said to me, we made a covenant together. I'm not fighting with you anymore. This is not me. This is not you. This is something else. Our battle's not against flesh and blood. And together, we took authority over that thing. And guess what? It left. It was never us. And you can begin to identify areas like this in your life. Do the natural part, but don't forget to deal with the atmosphere. Was this helpful to you tonight? I want to pray for you if you'd put your hand on your heart and pastor if you would come. Father, we thank you for the amazing word of God. Lord, your word is filled with so many amazing treasures. We ask, Holy Spirit, you would continue opening our eyes to the nuggets, to the gems that are in the word of God. We thank you that you have not left us powerless. You've given us authority. And rather than be victims of spiritual entities, we can take authority and we can make it all the way to the other side. We thank you that you've got a destiny for each one of us and no surprise attack is going to derail us from getting where you want us to be. And I rebuke the enemy in the name of Jesus. I rebuke any spiritual force in the atmosphere in the name of Jesus. I rebuke it. Now I want you to close your eyes just for a moment and see yourself like Jesus. Whatever it is that's been coming against you, that surprise attack, that thing that keeps hurling itself against you again and again, I want you to lift your face into the atmosphere and just take authority over it. Say, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. I forbid you to exercise any authority against me. I cast you out, you foul spirit. You have no authority against my life.
Now I want you to see that problem you've been fighting with. See it in your mind. And I want you to say, Thank you for this wonderful time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's message. We'd love for you to join us for our Sunday morning services at 10 o'clock. We also have what we call School of the Bible on Wednesday nights from 7 to 8. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.